Hi there. Welcome to Good, Great, Wonderful, a podcast that tells the stories of people who are contributing good, great, and wonderful things to the world. See this as your weekly dopamine fix. I'm your host, Grace Rouvray, and I personally want you to have a better day. So here's a story. Daniel Monks is absolute human sunshine. A child born for the stage, he had his sights firmly set on performing until a rare spinal tumour resulted in a disability when he was only 11. Initially, he tossed away his dream of performing, but flash forward 20-odd years and he's just performed with Amelia Clark on London's West End. How did he get there? Well, here's his story. When did you first feel your spark to be a performer? Oh, I mean, I, I have no memory of not having that spark. Like, I felt it's one of those things my mum was an actress and she went to NIDA and stuff. And when she was seven months pregnant with me, she did a one-woman show called From Here to Maternity about pregnancy. I was, like, in her uterus getting the kind of, like, stage of <laughs> hormones and stuff. And I think... Um, I just like kind of came out of the womb like the most gregarious, flamboyant, <laughs> creative, confident kid. Like I was, I was, I'm sure I would have been insufferable, but there's, there's videos of me from like age one and a half or two, like spending four hours on my own in the living room, just dancing to Little Mermaid soundtrack. I mean, like I was the kid who in year two adapted Peter Pan for the stage and forced my year two, entire year two class to do it with obviously me playing Peter. Like, I was that kid. <laughs> Maybe genetic from my mother as well. So, yeah. I love that. <laughs> it's a pretty wonderful upbringing to have. And she's in casting now, isn't she? Yeah, so from when I was age two, she moved into casting and has been in casting since. What was it like seeing the, you know, behind-the-camera version of this industry? I loved it. I mean, like, because also my mum's office was, like, attached to our house when I was growing up. It would be where I'd come home to and, like, hang out after school, like, I would be stapling, you know, the actor photos into manila folders and stuff and like try to be quiet while they're all having their conversations. And I just, I love the world of it. I just loved it so much. And also when I, in my like teens, once I was a bit older, mum would let me operate the camera for some of the auditions and stuff. So I also got to like be on the other side and in my immediate family, everyone does very different things, but like, this is like a real shared passion that my mum and I both share. And because obviously as a casting director, she has a lot of passion for actors and acting. And obviously I do. So it's just kind of like, yeah, this gorgeous creative shared passion that we have. Mm. Did you feel like it was the industry and being an actor was up on a pedestal because you were seeing this behind the scenes and you were seeing people audition and fight for things and yeah. this, I guess, the glitzy world of it all? Yeah. It also like in a strange way, like, pre-tumor um, and stuff. Like, if anything, it felt less on a pedestal and more, like, so tangible because, like, you know, mm-hmm. my mum cast this kids' TV show series called Ship to Shore and I remember, like, the lead girl from it was our babysitter. So it's, like, it's, like, the... the And obviously, like, that's just, like, kids' TV world, but for me as a kid, that was the glitziest that could be. It felt entirely attainable and, like not like this foreign concept. It was like, I know people who do this for their life. 
And when you were 11 years old, it was your PE teacher who noticed that you were favoring your left side and you were taken in for a whole bunch of tests. What, what were you sort of thinking when you were having those initial specialist checks? I mean, like I was so, I was 11. So like, I think for a lot of it, I just trusted my mum completely. And to be totally honest, I think a big part of me just liked the extra attention, like getting out of class and getting to like, whatever. And like, I didn't have a sense of impending doom or panic until the biopsy. Like until then it was, it was just something kind of special. I don't know. Like it's weird. It's weird. It's weird, like a child's perception of something that I, th- I think I just didn't have like a big picture sense of what was going on. Hmm. And what was the official diagnosis when they did find out what was going on? So they found a tumor in my cervical spinal cord from C1 to C5. And they didn't know if it was malignant or benign. They did a biopsy test and found out it was a benign astrocytoma. But due to complications from from biopsy and medical negligence, I acquired my disability from that biopsy. So initially um, became quadriplegic and then my left side came back over months of rehab and my right leg partially and then my right arm never did. Like the truncated version is then like six, seven months later, we went to Sydney to get, because I'm from Perth, so this was in Perth. And then we went to Sydney to get second opinions and stuff. And the prognosis wasn't good and that it, this would not be sustainable and that it could be um, kind of life and death and stuff. But also the tumors are not probable. It's way too tricky. But there was one incredible neurosurgeon, Charlie Teo, who saved my life and 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 we made us very aware of the risks and we decided to take the risk and over 12 and a half hour, 12 and a half hour operation he removed the in, entire tumor and i've been neurologically stable ever since and never had a tumor again but i have the paralysis due to the medical negligence from the biopsy just to pivot back to a, a proper performance perspective are we in the year what 2001 at this point yeah, so tumor was found in 2000 and then January 2001, I think it was like 5th of January 2001 was the tumor removal. If you're, you know, this this theatre kid and we are in the year of 2001 where we're making films and our, everyone that we see is able-bodied, it's not size inclusive, there's like absolutely yeah. no diversity unless it's comedic yes. and now yes. you're in a body that's not working how it used to for you. What is your relationship like with performing over the next few years? I gave it up completely. I... I I, I mean, the thing is, again, I I was close enough to the industry to know that, like, mm. I didn't see actors, disabled actors who who looked like me, working. Like when I first became disabled, I don't think I really thought about it much. But then once I went back to school, I was like, I still think I want to do this. And I remember emailing one of the top drama schools in Australia and asking, like, oh, I have a physical disability. Do you accept disabled people into your acting degree? And I remember the response being that um, we train actors for potential careers and since there's not much potential for a career, we think it's maybe not the right fit type thing. And at the time, like, I, I don't think I, I experienced devastation. I was just, like, quite pragmatic and, like, that makes sense. Yep. And so kind of um, abandoned and buried that dream completely and decided to channel my love of performance and my love of storytelling into being a filmmaker and kind of decided I'm going to be a filmmaker instead. 
were there roles that you actually saw for disabled actors or was that the pragmatic thing of going, oh, it doesn't exist, of course? Yeah, no, not at all. At least in Australia, like, I didn't see any. Like, like, like it's not like I, it's not like a door suddenly opened and I was like, I'm going to go through that door. It was like, oh, someone needs to bash the door in. There's an adage for minority actors that you have to work twice as hard to get half the opportunities. And, like, I was, like, so keenly aware that, like, like with most disabled people, for me, I have chronic pain. I have a lot of physical struggles. Like for me to do something, it already takes double the energy of an able-bodied person. So it's like I have to work like four times as hard to get half the opportunities. But it also, I think by age 25, I had enough awareness of my disability, of how disability is perceived in society, and also like had enough connection with my disabled community and understanding of disabled rights to be like, even if this is how it is right now, this shouldn't be the case. And even though it's going to be so much harder for me to have the opportunities that my peers might get much with, you know, with much less barriers, that any success I have enabled being able to do what this thing that I just love and feel like I was born to do, it can hopefully open doors for other people like me and other disabled people to have those opportunities mm-hmm. as well. The wins aren't just for me as they would be for any kind of Tom Dick or Harry, like like the wins for me and for other disabled actors feels like a win for us, you know, which is yeah. a, it's, it, it fuels you. That's beautiful. As if it's like a, such a holistic thing. It's, it's, it's bigger than you. Totally. But fuck all those people <laughs> that, <laughs> because in Australia, yes. you are, a successful writer, a producer, and you have been nominated for a Helpman Award. And you also worked at the STC, which is of the holy grail for Australian actors. Could you please tell me about your time on Lord of the Flies and using Kate Blanchett's dressing room? <laughs> How do you know I use Kate Blanchett's dressing room? You've done your research. That 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 was very nice and that was very generous of the beautiful, amazing Mia Mashikovska, who gave me the dressing room close to the stage, which is the fancy dressing room, even though by all rights, it should have been hers, but she <laughs> when it was kind, beautiful human. I had a gorgeous, gorgeous time on that. The um, Keith Williams is just like such an amazing director, and that whole rehearsal process just felt so incredibly holistic and nurturing. And obviously, because like the material is exploring like very toxic, unhealthy dynamics and stuff, but like the group of us, it felt so. I don't know, we felt so supported and nurtured and it was really beautiful. And yeah, it was just, um, it was a beautiful time. And we're obviously talking over the internet because you're not in this country. What took you to London? It was so, it's one of those ones where it's like, God laughs at your plans. Not that I necessarily believe in the religious God. But um, that thing of like, I loved New York. I always wanted to move to New York. That was kind of always the dream. I never had any real interest in London or the UK. And then Pulse got into the BFI Flair LGBT Film Festival in London. They asked for me to go and I was doing a play at the time and and I and also we've done a number, number of festivals and like I do I love them, but they're also very taxing. And I was like, I think I'm gonna sit this one out. And then like kind of wonderfully they like really pushed for me to go. Thank God they did. So I managed to make it work and I was able to go and I went over there and fortunately because of my grandfather, I had an orange passport and I was like, well, I'll just, you know, try to see about getting 
UK representation, never thinking I'd like ever make a move or whatever. And then this amazing cast director here who I'd previously had never met in person, but just sent, in, sent himself tape. And there was a, the year before, like a worldwide call out for a disabled actor. So this cast director, Daniel Edwards, I emailed him. It was just like, I'm thinking of trying to get UK rep, have Irish passport, blah, blah, blah. And he set up for like 14 meetings for me in four days. And like, like just completely for the first time in my career, it felt like I didn't have to book actually door down, but I was actually like welcomed and people wanted me to be there. And I had like the most amazing meetings and signed with my agents here who were just like the dream of dream agents. And then the reason why I have a career here and every job I've got, it was just really nice. I feel like it's such a great sense in London, both in career, but also in terms of life of just like belonging. I think, um, I think like in terms of disability, both in terms of industry, but also just in terms of greater society, it's just at least like a decade more progressed than Australia. And I didn't expect that, but it's just kind of this like weird utopic glitz into the future. And once you've seen the future, it's hard to go back to the past. Yeah. It's just been really joyous. You were a part of the cast of Teenage Dick, which is a lovely theatre in Common Garden. How did you end up auditioning for The Seagull? And did you know the cast before you auditioned? So I knew the cast before I auditioned. I um, basically Teenage Dick had its press night, like its opening night. That went really well. And then like, I think it was like three days later, I got the call like from my agent Sam Turnbull and my other agent Sophie Holden from Curtis Brown. I'm just going to shout them out because they literally <laughs> my face. But so I got the call saying, oh, the seagull with Jamie Lloyd, who I knew from his McAvoy's Serena de Bergerac with Amelia Clark. Do you want to audition? I was like, yeah. And so <laughs> I had just an amazing audition. Amazing, not amazing, that's what I did amazing, but an amazing experience because I just felt like I immediately clicked with Jamie, the director. It was, I had like two auditions whilst doing Teenage Dick and then found out like, I think like two or three weeks before Teenage Dick ended. And then I remember Teenage Dick ended on a Saturday night. I had Sunday off and I started rehearsals for The Seagull on the Monday. Yeah, it was a dream. What actors strive for is to be, you were like full-time employed. You finished one and then started another. I know this podcast is obviously to talk about nice things, but we are going to talk about March 2020. Oh. <laughs> COVID did smash the industry's hopes and dreams, but your the seagull was in its, what, fourth or fifth preview when it was put on hold. Yeah. How long did you think it would be on hold for? So they said six weeks and it was like mm. a 12 run. So we're like, okay, we'll miss out on half the run. That sucks. Mm. That's fine. So I stayed in London because of my paralysis, have a weak right lung. So like I'm in the vulnerable category. And then also I'm not a British citizen. So, and at the time, like they didn't enough ventilators and stuff. So like there was a serious chance of like, if I got it, it could be very bad for me. So I basically spent seven weeks and I did not leave my flat for seven weeks. Like I, like I, I was like, and like, especially after being so out in the world and, you know, living your dreams and then being trapped that was hard but then in seven weeks it realized oh no this might be like three months away so i was like okay i'll go back to see my parents in perth for three months and i got to perth and then two months into that it was clear this is not going to happen anytime soon so i came back to m- my 
Australia and home with Sydney. And what was meant to be a three-month trip to Australia ended up being 17 months. It's that thing of like the greater the struggle, the greater the growth. And like it was really hard, but I think that experience really forced me to reassess my priorities in life. And and I think like it's it's strange because like the life I have now post that experience is so much richer than it was before, even though at the time when I lost it all, I felt like everything I'd been working for for so long. And obviously people had much worse experiences during COVID, but like for my experience, it felt like everything I'd been working for had been taken from me and so I'm going to come back. And yeah, it was really, um, it's kind of, yeah, like beautiful how it's kind of come, come around the mm. other side, but like richer than I could have ever hoped mm. for before. Well, take me to the the real opening week in 2022 and when the world is not vibrating in chaos. Yeah. You're doing your previews again or let's say it's opening night. What's the feeling? What's the feeling in the wings? Oh, like relief. I mean, that like that production, that play is something that's going to like stay with me forever and I think a lot of the cast because like it was 805 days between us getting shut down and starting rehearsals again. We lived through something together and like, I remember as well like, like, you know, for the first 14 months of COVID, Indra Obama, who plays our cardinal, and I play her son, Constantine, we played words with friends every single day for like 13, 14 months. Like it was really, it was a kind of a surreal thing. So getting us back in the room together was really amazing. And the entire, the fact that we got to do our entire run 805 days later was so meaningful because it did really feel unfinished. Coming back and finishing that felt like the end of... COVID for me in a way like and obviously it's still going on it's not ending but like an emotional end to that kind of dark Mm. period and like it was really hard because it's a really bleak heavy play especially for my character with Amelia Clark in particular like our dressing rooms were next to each other and the final scene for those who know the play is like very much a bond between them and like we really it was that thing of like it wasn't um, necessarily like pleasurable or fun, but it was like challenging, fulfilling, like hiking Everest. And it feels like we hiked Everest together. And like, there's such a sense of, um, kind of like profound accomplishment. Mm. I asked, I asked this next question with the knowledge that I know I'm projecting my own insecurities onto you. Did you ever have moments like when you are backstage or when you are on stage and you're staring opposite Amelia Clark? Did you ever think, how am I here? <laughs> what I'm what I'm asking is, do you have perform? Did you ever have performance imposter syndrome? Oh, it's it's so strange. Um, well, like especially with Amelia, like on stage and stuff, she's just like such an amazing actor. I, I never feel any sense of that. But like we did some press together and that's when I feel like, oh my God, you're a movie star. Like, this is so, like, and I'm like fucking this random kid from Australia. Like, what is going on? Like, it's so, um, yeah, like, like definitely have those moments with like the kind of promotion of it. But, um, and something as well that I, I feel, I have like such a unique life experience and such a unique, I don't know, I feel like so much of like, being a good actor is having lived a full life and having stories to tell. And regardless of plaudits or 
fame or whatever, I feel like I have something to offer. That imposter syndrome, I feel so acutely in like a red carpet situation where I feel like I'm not meant to be here. This is not, and it's just like, it's not something I enjoy. It's not something I'm good at. It's not something I'm made for. And also like those situations are like the most ableist situations you could ever imagine. So like, it's not surprising that. But when it comes to like the actual work, I'm, I kind of feel like, mm-hmm. no, I, this is my life and my passion and I've got this. And like, I'm not, yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes sense. I was going to say before you said it, it sounds like you were just about the work. Yeah. There's truly like nothing in this life I love more than acting. I feel like I'm happier and also mentally healthier every day I get to act. For me, that's rarely, like I never get, I mean, knock on wood, I shouldn't even just this, but like, I don't get, <laughs> I'm not going to say the word, but like fright. I don't know. I think also as well, like, this is maybe very disability specific, but like, because of my paralysis, my paralysis affects half my body. Because of that as well, it affects my entire half of my body. So I also, I'm incontinent. And like, I have pissed on every stage I've been on. And like, like, you can't embarrass me. Like, I just like, I'm, my, my like, my like embarrassment resilience, like, is so high. It's so freeing. Like, I don't know, like, it really does, um, when I say I'm not actually on the stage, just like I'm, like I'm, <laughs> I wear protection or whatever, but just, you know, like the kind of, I don't know, like every like worst case embarrassment thing of like people, I'm just like, I'm just saying when I'm already not living in the world of you ables who worry about like meaningless stuff. My last question is, uh, I don't sure if you know, there was this thing that happened a few years ago where Frank Ocean wrote a letter to himself, his five years ago self. Hey, I know you just got your heart broken, but that's going to make you, that's going to help you write an album and that album people are going to like. And I don't want to give too much away, but I'm currently like on a plane about to go and record with Jay-Z and Kanye West. Like it's this really beautiful reflection to his five years ago self. And he like encouraged everyone to do it as a way to see how far you've come in five years years so I wanted yeah. to ask you Daniel Monks if you could write a letter to your five years ago self so 2018 Daniel what would you tell your 2018 self oh my gosh 2018 was the year that like June 1st was the year I came over to London and that first year was like so lonely and hard and like amazing because I had the doorway of my agent so I was able to audition a lot but like it was you know, like a year of rejection. So like it was, um, and also feeling like I've uprooted my entire life. Have I made the wrong decision? I had no money. I can't survive. I don't know. I would really say to my five years ago self that like stick with it. It is more, it's going to be more worthwhile than you can even imagine, not only in terms of work, but also in terms of your life. Yeah. Stick with it. Thank you so much um, for coming and sharing your story and sharing your amazing success. It's just been lovely to chat. It's been so lovely. This has been so lovely. Thank you so much. This podcast is made on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Thank you so much for listening. If you know a great story, a wonderful person, or just a good old fact that you think we should cover, jump into our DMs and let us know. Good Great Wonderful is produced and hosted by me, Grace Rouvray, with audio production by Adair Shepard and theme music composed by Simon Beaton. See you next week.